0: So I went to a college that had a lot of rules. Uh, First semester, freshman year, you weren't allowed to date. Um, We had mandatory study hours every night. Monday through Friday, two hours every night. We had to be in our room studying. Uh, I also remember that we had to go to chapel four days a week. Uh, We had an 11 p.m. curfew. So your college experience may have been very different than mine, but I went to a school that had a lot of rules. I went to a Bible school. And those were just the rules that everybody was kind of okay with. Then there were the dumb rules. And uh, we had some dumb rules. And one of the dumb rules was, guys, every time we went to class, we had to either be wearing or carrying with us a blazer or a sweater. So you didn't even have to wear it. You just had to have it on you somewhere. So in your backpack or tied around your waist or whatever. And so, of course, being young men, we found loopholes with this rule. And I remember two of my friends, uh, one of them, he went to the thrift store and he bought a little baby sweater. And he threw it in his backpack, and every time a teacher would say, hey Johnny, where's your your sweater? He'd pull out this little tiny baby sweater. And technically, he's keeping the rule. Like the rule didn't say the sweater had to fit you. It just said you had to carry a sweater. And uh, another one of my friends would take, uh, he'd, he'd carry his backpack everywhere, and the arm of his sweater would be hanging out his backpack zipper. And so he'd be walking to class, and somebody would say, hey, where's your jacket? Where's your sweater? And he would just turn his back to them, so they would see the arm hanging out of his backpack, and he would keep walking. Of course, they assumed that that arm was attached to an actual sweater. Of course, it wasn't. It was just the arm of a sweater that he had sewed to his backpack. I remember another rule that we had, it was called uh, mixed groups. And in order to go off campus, you had to go off campus in mixed groups and you had to get permission from an RA to go off campus. And so a mixed group is basically a mixed gender group, but it couldn't be even numbers. So it had to be five or more if it was guys and girls, two guys, three girls, two girls, three guys, whatever you wanted. And so I remember one night, my first year at this school and me and my friend were talking with two uh, young women and we wanted to go hang out somewhere. You know, we didn't have any real bad intentions. We just didn't want to stay on campus. And I had a car and these girls had a car. And so we like hatched this brilliant plan. We're like, well, it says we can't go off campus together, but what if we go off separate and just, like, run into each other, quote-unquote, somewhere. So that was our whole plan. We're going to go off campus, we're going to head to Henrietta, we're going to run into each other at a Barnes & Noble, and if anybody comes up to us and says, hey, you guys know there's only four of you, you're not supposed to be off campus together, we would say, oh, we just ran into each other. Like, we didn't actually leave campus together, thinking that our integrity would still be intact. About a mile down the road, as we are heading to Henrietta, at about 65 miles an hour, I hit a deer. (laughs) $2,000 $2,000 worth of damage to my car. And it's always a reminder to me that God has interesting ways of looking out for us when we're, when we're trying to bend the rules and trying to break the rules. There were some dumb rules. You know, when Jesus walked the earth, the Jewish people had a lot of rules. And if we're honest, some of them were a little dumb. Uh, the Mishnah was a collection of Jewish laws that had been gleaned from the teachings of well over 100 different rabbis. And it was put together like in this little book, this little booklet, this little document called the Mishnah, about 200 years before Jesus was born. And the Mishnah was essentially a list of rules. It wasn't scripture, it was tradition. It was on top of scripture. Here's a bunch of rules, and one of the main focuses was protecting the Sabbath and making sure that people didn't work on the Sabbath, even accidentally. And so in an attempt to make sure that people didn't accidentally work on the Sabbath, they came up with pages and pages of rules. And I just wanna share a few of them with you because they're just so absurd. Okay, so here's a few. One rule in the Mishnah was this. Looking in the mirror on the Sabbath was forbidden. How many of you this morning already broke that Mishnah rule? You looked in the mirror. Looking in the mirror was forbidden, and here's why. Not because of vanity, but because you might see a gray hair, and you might be tempted to pull that gray hair out. And if you pull that gray hair out of your head, it's work, and you can't work on the Sabbath. (laughs) You could not wear false teeth if you had them. Why? Because if they fell out, you would be tempted to pick them up and put them back in, and that considered work. Uh, the rabbis would debate about uh, a man with a wooden leg. If his home caught on fire, was he allowed by the Mishnah to carry his wooden leg? out of the burning house. I mean, these are the sort of things that the religious teachers were spending their energy and their time in debating. And here's this one I thought was the most ridiculous of all. One could spit on the Sabbath. You were allowed to spit on the Sabbath, but you had to be careful where you spit. Because if it landed on dirt and you then scuffed it with your sandal, do you know what you were doing? You're cultivating the soil and you're performing work. <laughs> these were actual laws from the Mishnah And these were all the laws that the Pharisees were determined to follow. And not just determined to follow, but determined that everyone else... Should also follow. And the Sabbath was only one part of the Mishnah. In fact, the biggest concern of the Mishnah was not the Sabbath. The biggest concern of the Mishnah was cleanliness. Uh, and much of it was concerned with what we would consider to be ritual washing. Now, this arose from the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, I think in Exodus 30 and Exodus 40, there's a biblical command given to the priests that they should always be washing their hands. But that was just to the priests and for very specific purposes. 200 years before Jesus, every pious, devoted Jew was considering themselves responsible to be involved in ritual washing all the time. So here's what they're doing. They're washing all the time. I mean, before meals, they would wash. They had this very detailed way they should wash their hands, and it really is reminiscent of a way a modern-day surgeon prepares him or herself to enter the operating room. Very careful washing of their hands. And if they were to go out to the marketplace, Wegmans or Target or Walmart, someplace where they might somehow defile themselves... They would come back and not just wash their hands, they would have to take a whole bath. It was a pretty big deal. There is actually 35 pages devoted just to how you washed your dishes. Now, marrying Aaron, I've learned that there's different definitions of clean when it comes to dishes. Do you know what I mean? For me, as long as there's not huge chunks of food on the plate, like, that's pretty clean, right? I can use that again. Aaron has got to be, like, steamed and, and, and spotless and... So I understand there's some room for conversation about how do we wash our dishes, but 35 pages of rules on how to wash your dishes. So with this as the backdrop, we get to this story in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they notice that some of Jesus' disciples are eating food with hands that are unwashed. I wanted to give you this backdrop because otherwise this story makes no sense to us. But this is the world that this happened in. We're going to read in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 5. Look, the Pharisees see them eating with hands that are unwashed. And it says, beginning in verse 5, that the Pharisees and the scribes ask them, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders is the Mishnah. Why don't, they're not saying that they are disobeying Scripture. They're saying they're out of step with our traditions. So why do they not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus replied to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So this conversation is not off to a great start. Like, this is, not how you make, this is not how you make friends and win influence. Jesus calls them hypocrites and basically says, you're honoring God in your, in your lip with your lips, but your heart is far from him. And let's skip down to verse 14. He calls the people to him again, and he says, he's still talking about this. He says, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him or defile her. It's not what you put into your body that defiles you is what Jesus is saying. Because this this was, remember, the Mishnah also had a lot of rules and laws about what we could eat and what we couldn't eat. And Jesus is saying, that's not your problem. Your problem isn't whether you're eating pork or not eating pork or eating shellfish or not eating shellfish. What really defiles you is what's in your heart. All right? So this morning, we're gonna look closely at the difference between following Jesus and following the rules. And there actually is a big difference. Many people have been in church a long time and they think they're following Jesus, but really they're following the rules. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, I wouldn't consider myself a Christ follower. And that's fine. I'm so glad that you're here. But maybe your experience with Christians has been, oh, I know what Christianity is all about. It's about knowing the rules, keeping the rules, and making sure that everyone knows that you've done it. And making sure that everyone who doesn't keep the rules knows that they haven't. And if that's been your experience with Christianity, I hope you're surprised this morning by what you hear. So we're going to look this morning at three differences between Jesus and rules. And the first one is this. Rules say, hope in, me, hope in you. Jesus says, hope in me. Rules say, hope in you, hope in yourself. Jesus says, hope in me. Now, the Pharisees' commitment to ritual purity made them extremely pious, self-righteous, and goody-goody to the point of being obnoxious. I'm sure none of you have ever known somebody who's goody-goody to the point of being obnoxious. Maybe you had a brother or a sister. If not, maybe you were that person. But you always get it right, and it becomes obnoxious. These Pharisees had an attitude of superiority. They were arrogant. They were self-righteous. And Jesus has the backbone and the heart to call them out on it. And he says, Your legalism is nothing more than the commandments of man. Now, that would have really irritated them. That would have really pushed their buttons because for the Pharisees, the Mishnah, the oral law tradition was as binding as Scripture was. In fact, in some circles, they believed that it was more precious than Scripture and more authoritative than Scripture. But worst of all, the Pharisees were clearly hoping in their own ability to keep the rules. And there's so many problems with hoping in ourselves and so many problems with hoping in rules. One problem is this, we can't keep them. We can't. We can't even even live up to our own expectations and our own standards, let alone the expectations and standards that our family and society and our coworkers and other people have for us. And when you can't keep rules, you know what you do? You go out and you buy a little baby sweater and you put it in your backpack. (laughs) No, I'm serious. You find a loophole. That's what we do. When we can't keep rules, we find loopholes. You know, it's February 11th. By now, most people don't even remember what their New Year resolution was. By now, the gyms are back to normal occupancy, right? We make these goals, we set these goals, we don't keep them, and so then we find and create loopholes. Now, there's a, we didn't read it, but in between the two passages that we read, Jesus gives them a very specific example, and it's about the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is to honor your mother and your father. Now every Jew understood that the fifth commandment honoring one's father and mother included that you had the responsibility to take care of them as they got older. As they aged, they took care of you when you were little, as they age, you're now responsible to take care of them. That was part of their culture and that was part of honoring the fifth commandment, but there was a new tradition. There was a new rule and it was a loophole. It was a way to get around taking care of old mom and old dad. They're draining your bank account, well we got a new rule. We got a new tradition. And all you simply had to do was say, all of my possessions are given to God. It was called Corbin. If you said, my possessions are Corbin, what it meant was, everything I own is God's, so because it's God's, I can't help you. Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. I know you have needs. I can't do it. I've devoted all my stuff to God. Even worse than that, the tradition in the Mishnah required a person to keep that vow even if it was spoken rashly or in a fit of anger. Now, I know kids and parents don't ever have rash moments or fits of anger, but imagine if everything you ever said to your mom and dad in a fit of anger you had to keep, you were held to. And that's what they're saying here. Even if you say it when you're not thinking straight, even when you tell your mom when you're angry, I'm never providing anything for you, I'm giving it all to God, you had to keep your word according to the tradition. One's vow to God was more important than keeping the fifth commandment. That's what was happening, tradition over scripture. So what's interesting here? is that the very people who try to prove themselves by keeping the rules end up twisting the rules in order to find a loophole. But what does that look like for you and me today? I think that sometimes when we're rule followers in our heart, here's what we do. We're always asking and debating questions of technicality. So things like this. How much exactly can I get away with before it's sin? How much can I do? How close to the edge can I get until God will actually be upset with me, right? That was like the primary question I used to have with my teenage friends back in Christian high school. We always were wondering, how much is too much? How far is too far? And when your heart is asking that sort of question, you're a rule follower, but you don't really like the rules, so what are you looking for? A loophole. You're arguing over technicalities instead of hearing the heart behind the rule. Some rule followers tend to be so busy taking a stand on personal convictions, political views, and cultural distinctives that they're too warped by all of that to take the time to love people, to listen to people who are different than them, and to learn from people. Recently, I heard a a speaker say Christians need to spend less time taking a stand and more time taking a walk. And this is what he meant. Less time taking a stand on social media and saying this is all the things we stand for and if you don't stand for these things then you're nothing like us and more time taking a walk journeying with people, walking alongside people, getting to know people, listening to them, submitting ourselves even to learn from them. All of us can learn from one another and you know you can learn from people who don't agree with you on certain things and this is the heart of God but we've elevated in some ways our rule following to say, well, oh yeah, yeah, but let me, let me make sure that you know exactly where I stand on this. The heart of the law is to Love. And so we have this problem of, of looking for loopholes. Another problem with trying to hope in rules is that we end up treating the symptom instead of the sickness. Do you notice that Jesus called him a hypocrite? A hypocrite was a play actor, a, a phony. And worst of all, he said that although you are outward, outwardly honoring God, the core of your life is not even close. So on the outside, it looks like you got together, you're in church every week, you're paying the tithe, you're giving the offering, you're singing the songs, you're doing it all, but your heart is far from me. And what's ironic about this is they thought they were the best. They thought they were the greatest. Here's the problem with rules and hoping and trusting in rules. They may control your behavior, but they can't change your heart. It may place a fence around your life, but it doesn't fix your biggest issue. And our behavior is just the symptom of our sickness. And our sickness, as we see in this passage, is in our hearts. So treating just the symptoms is sort of like taking medicine to suppress a cough when you have a cold. It might suppress the cough, but it doesn't treat the cold. Or taking medicine to break a fever when you have the flu. It may break the fever, it may bring your temperature down, but it doesn't actually cure the flu. See, behavior is the symptom of what's going on in our rule breaking hearts, but our real issue is worship, beholding, that we're loving someone or something more than Jesus, and there's no rule that you can follow that's gonna make you love Jesus more than anything else in the world. Here's the other problem with hoping in rules. Even your rule keeping, even your best rule keeping, you know what it does to you? It destroys you and it deceives you. And here's how it does it. It destroys you by making you very arrogant, like the Pharisees, or by making you very, feeling very insecure because you're not good enough at keeping the rules. You might ask at this point, why would anyone choose to keep the rules? What's the attraction to rules? Why do we follow rules instead of following Jesus? There's two reasons. The first one is this. If you are a rule follower, you know what it does? It puts you in control of your own salvation. puts you in the driver's seat. You saved yourself by following the rules. and At the end of the day, that's what every single human being wants. We wanna be in control. We wanna be in power. We don't wanna be indebted to anybody. And so if we're rule keeping Christians, then we're not indebted to God. We're just indebted to ourselves for keeping the rules. But the other thing that happens is if you saved yourself by keeping the rules, it puts a limit on what God can ask of you. You're like a spiritual taxpayer. You did your part. And so now God, you can't ask me to suffer. You can't ask me to walk through that pain. You can't ask ask of me to endure family issues. You can't ask me to go through the loss of a job. God, don't you know all the rules I've been keeping for you? Don't you know all the good things I've been doing for you? So here's how rule keeping can destroy you and deceive you. It actually makes you think that God is indebted to you when the whole message of the gospel is we are indebted to God beyond anything we could ever imagine. When you hope in yourself, you're either constantly failing yourself or proving yourself. And neither makes your heart confident and humble at the same time. Rules say hope in you. Jesus says hope in me. All right, second point this morning. Rules are about trying. Jesus is about trusting. Rules are about trying. Jesus is about trusting. What Jesus said here, by the way, in this text was revolutionary. When he said in verse 15, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him, that was so radically revolutionary, but we can't understand it probably properly today. Dr. Vincent Taylor, who wrote a book called The Gospel According to St. Mark, he said this about verse 15. In laying down the principle that uncleanness comes from within and not from without, Jesus stated a truth, uncommon in contemporary Judaism, which was destined to free Christianity from the bondage of legalism. And William Barclay looks at this verse and he says, this is the most revolutionary passage in the entire New Testament. The most revolutionary passage in the entire New Testament when Jesus says, not what you put in that defiles you, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. For the Jews of this day, this was off their radar. They didn't understand this. This was incredible. And they didn't get it. Do you know how we didn't get it? Or do you know how we know they didn't get it? Because when we keep reading, the disciples come to Jesus after this whole thing, and they say, hey, Jesus, that was a cool parable. Explain it to us. (laughs) Like, cool joke. What's the punchline? Like, neat little illustration metaphor. What's it really mean? And Jesus basically says, that wasn't a parable. That's not a story. That's not a metaphor. That's a kingdom truth. Your problem is not around you. Your biggest problem is inside of you. Look at what he says. I think I'll have this on the screen for you in verse 20. He says, what comes out of a man is what defiles him. And then he begins to list things that come out of our heart. From within, out of the heart of man or woman, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality envy slander pride foolishness and all these evil things come from within and they defile a person oof what a list you might be you might be tempted to say not my heart not in me not that stuff i've beaten all that stuff Jesus is teaching us something really important here. Now, let me explain what some of these words actually mean. I just picked a few. Evil thoughts are evil reasonings within oneself. That one makes sense. Coveting is a sort of insatiable appetite for what belongs to other people. Not just stuff, but status. Not just status, but relationship. So you might look at someone else's marriage and go, that's what I would like. That's coveting. You might look at someone else's job or, or, or lifestyle and say, I would, man, what would I do you start daydreaming. What would I do if I lived there, if I had that sort of money? You might, you might watch celebrities on TV and think, oh man, I know they say money ruins you, but just give me a chance. Let me prove that I'm the exception. Give me, let's, let's just test it out. That's coveting. Deceit means to not just to deceive people, but to bait people, to try and trick people. This could be something that we do in our workplaces where we're deceiving people to move ourselves forward in whatever we're doing in work. Sensuality is plunging into moral debauchery in open defiance of public opinion, saying no matter what society agrees on, I'm going to enjoy pleasure at my own choosing. Envy is refers to an evil eye that watches another person's possession. You can't take your eyes off someone else's stuff or someone else because you envy it. Slander is not just talking against each other, but it's blasphemy against God. By the way, blasphemy against God and taking the Lord's name in vain is not just cussing and cursing the way that maybe we hear. Taking the Lord's name in vain and blasphemy against God is also accrediting to God things that he didn't do or say. So we got to be careful about when we say, The Lord said to me this... If the Lord didn't say it to you, that's blaspheming his name. That's not honoring his name. And it's also making him pick your side of the battle in every argument that he doesn't pick in scripture. And there's lots of them. Lots of opinions that we have. It's okay to say it's your opinion. This is how I feel. That's fine. But when you start to say, God also thinks this way. Isn't it interesting that God happens to support all of my preferences? It's, so, it's worked out so well. I mean, this is just very convenient. Well, you know what you've done. You don't have a God that's created you in his image. You have a God that you've created in your image. And he serves your agenda and your purposes. And this is what Jesus is saying. This comes out of our heart. And then another word he says here is pride. Pride is the sin of a self-praising person who has contempt for everyone but him or herself, who can judge everyone else by their actions but, deter- but is determined to be judged by their motivations. And this is how Jesus viewed our hearts, our, our hearts apart from grace. Jesus is teaching us here the doctrine of depravity, that every area of our lives is tainted and stained with sin. And it originates in the man's heart. And this is, these aren't minor issues. These are major issues. These are foundational issues. And there's no amount of rule keeping and trying and effort on your part that's going to get you out of this stuff. You can't try your way out of a depraved heart. You have to trust Jesus that he can do something with your depraved, broken heart. It's a complete overhaul. I remember over here years ago on the corner of uh, 57 and 31 near the office where I used to work, there used to be a place called J.D. Fish Fry. Anybody remember J.D.'s fish fry? You go in there and you get some some yummy fried up uh, fish and some yummy fried up fries and J.D.'s fish fry. Well, eventually it closed and Tim Hortons wanted to come in. That didn't go so well, but Tim Hortons came in. Well, what did Tim Hortons do? Did they just move in, put up new signs, repaint the outside? What did they do? They leveled J.D.'s fish fry because they wanted to build from the ground up so that it looked the way it was supposed to look. It functioned the way it was supposed to function. And even as the building was being built, you've, you've experienced this, as buildings are being built, sometimes you can tell what they are before there's a sign, before there's paint, because they look the right way. This is what it means to trust in Jesus. Not, Jesus, come into my life, and I'm going to try really hard to redecorate and rearrange, repaint, put a new sign up, I belong to you. Jesus wants to come in and level Amen. our hearts, level our lives. Why? It hurts, it's painful, but why? So that as he builds us up, we look the way we're supposed to look. We act the way we're supposed to act. We function the way we're supposed to function. And when somebody looks at us, they know exactly who we are and they know exactly whose we are. You can try and try and try, but you cannot fix yourself. You must trust in Jesus and what he's done for you. The gospel says this, you cannot achieve a right heart. You can only receive a right heart. It's the only hope we have. Not to earn our way into a better heart than what Jesus talks about, but to receive a right heart. And then my last point this morning, the difference between rules and Jesus is this. Rules keep people out, but Jesus brings people in. Somebody say amen. Amen. Rules keep people out, but Jesus, he brings people in. Now at this point in the message, there's probably two categories of people in the room. Two different responses to everything you've heard. The first type of person is this. You're saying something like this in your heart. Boy, I'm really glad you're saying this, Pastor. A lot of people in this room need to hear this. (laughs) And I know exactly who they are, I know where they're sitting, and I'm watching them to see if they're paying attention. Or, I wish so-and-so was here from my past to hear this. I wish my parents were here. I wish my grandparents were here. I wish they were here because you're the type of person, you think rules are dumb, and you think everyone who pushes the rules on you is even more dumb. And so you're kind of like, yeah, no rules, I hate rules, good message, let's go home and eat, right? (laughs) Then the other category of person is actually a little nervous. You're maybe thinking to yourself, great, great, just what this generation needs. More off the hook, no rules sort of language, more do whatever you want, live life however you want. And I want to finish this message, and I want to close by saying both of those responses are at risk of missing the entire point of what I'm saying. And you're actually both at risk of being a Pharisee. Scott Sauls says that there's moralistic Pharisees, and this is what they say. A moralistic Pharisee says, I disregard you because you aren't as virtuous and well-behaved as I am. That's a moralistic Pharisee. But then he said there's also grace Pharisees. And grace Pharisees say this, I disregard you because you aren't as kind and accepting and inclusive as I am. He's saying both types of people are keeping people out. Why? Because rules keep people out. Now let me talk to the first type of, uh, or let me talk to the second type of person first, the one who who says, uh, I disregard you because you aren't kind, accepted, and exclusive. You hate rules. You think rules are dumb. Let me start by asking you this question. Well, what are rules? What are rules? Rules ultimately are beliefs and convictions that determine the way we live our lives, right? You may not carry around a Mishnah, but you got a set of rules. You got a set of values, right? You have parameters on your life. So rules are beliefs and convictions that determine how you live. And so what this means is if that's true, then everyone has a set of rules that they use to get through life. No one goes through life without any rules. Even the approach of, I think there should be no rules, is a rule. You're saying to people, hey, I got a rule for you, no rules. Now, you wouldn't say it that way because you don't like rules, but you've just given them a rule in the form of a no rule. So this whole thing about rules isn't just about uptight, legalistic people. This is about all of us. When we live our lives according to our way, not according to Jesus' way, whether it's a moralistic Pharisee or a grace Pharisee, and we demand that everyone else see things the way we see them, then it's our rules keeping people on the outside. How do you know what your rules are, by the way? Well, pay attention because you'll get angry when people don't play by your rules. You'll get frustrated at work when people aren't playing by your rules. You'll feel disrespected when people don't keep your rules. And you'll find yourself saying things like this. That person should know better. And what you're saying is they should know my rules and they should live by them. Or you're saying, why can't everyone just be like me? Why can't everyone just think like me, act like me, drive like me, shop like me, work like me? You're saying, how come you don't keep my rules? I got this Mishnah, David's Mishnah, here's my rules, why don't you live by them? And when you don't live by them, I find myself inordinately frustrated and irritated with you. Or maybe you'll say something like this, how can that idiot believe that's true? And we're not talking about things in scripture, we're talking about personal preferences cultural distinctives and things that maybe the holy spirit has convicted you of because of your journey and because of your maturity in christ that he's not speaking to somebody else it doesn't mean you can't share wisdom with people it doesn't mean you can't share your story with people but what it means is you don't take your rule book and put it like a yoke on someone else's shoulders and say now live just like i live everyone's journey is different and god's working through his grace with everyone else at the end of the day, everyone has rules, and rules, when they are the most important thing in our lives, they do. They keep people outside. They keep people out of reach. You will ever reach out to people that you think don't keep your rules, and they keep people out of relationship. And here's how I want to finish. I want you to consider this truth, that ultimately, your inability, my inability, our inability to honor God and to keep his rules was destined to keep us out, outside of relationship and outside of his reach. That's what it would have done. And it's the one thing that we all need most. But Jesus brings us in. Or how does Jesus bring us in? As we walk through Mark, every encounter, every story, every teaching, every miracle, every conversation, every moment is moving Jesus closer to the cross. And this is a big one here in Mark chapter seven. What happens in Mark chapter seven is all of a sudden the religious leaders go, he's not just doing cool stuff. He's actually threatening the status quo. This is when the religious leaders began to go, this Jesus is a danger to us and to our ways of lives. And it was interactions like this one in Mark 7 that determined the eventual outcome for Jesus, that he would be lied about and sold out by the religious leaders, and that Rome would be convinced to kill him as a criminal, as an enemy of the state. In encounters like the one that we looked at this morning, Mark chapter 7, this is what got Jesus killed. This is what got him killed but Jesus spoke the truth even though he knew it would cost him his life. Jesus loved the outsider even knowing that it would anger the insiders. Jesus ate with sinners even while the moral religious people planned his demise, his destruction, his death. And Jesus time and time again in the Gospel of Mark demonstrates God's power over nature, over sickness, and even over death knowing that one day soon he would lay down his life and allow other people to have power over him the power to destroy him, the power to kill him. See, Jesus brought us in by being willing to be cast out. He was cast out so that we could be brought in. And when the Spirit helps us see this in our hearts, that Jesus was cast out for us, Jesus was cast out for you, that Jesus was cast out in your place, he was, you should have been cast out because you can't keep the rules. I should have been cast out because I can't keep the rules. But Jesus said, I will be cast out for them. I volunteer. I'll take their place. I will be cast out for them. He was cast out so we can be brought in. And when we see it and when we taste it, then we can be changed, not just with our behavior, but we'll be changed in our hearts. And heart change is what we need, not more rules and not more rule keeping. You know what we need? We need a new heart. According to John 3, we need a new birth. We need a resurrection. And we need new creation. And I'm telling you, there's no amount of following the rules that can do that for you. You cannot follow the rules in order to get a new heart, new birth, resurrection, and new creation. The gospel is consummately radical. It gives us a new heart, a new birth, a new life, a new creation. And for those of you that are sitting in the room and you're a little nervous about messages like this, I just want to say that the truth and the beauty of the gospel is the very reason why we don't have to force people to follow our rules. We don't have to demand that people follow our rules because the gospel still works. The gospel is still the power of God, not just to save us, but to shape us. And when our hearts have been made alive by the gospel, and you'll know if this is you or not, because you've gone from receiving the rules as a burden to receiving rules as a gift. There's a God who loves me. If he's saying this to me, it's a gift to me. It's grace. You've moved from joyless obligation to joyful worship. And you moved from rules to relationship. But we have to have the right order. It's out of relationship that we hear what God's asking of us. And then because he's done everything for us, we gratefully say yes. I read a tweet yesterday that said this by Scott Sauls: Indicatives first, then imperatives. In other words, here's what's been done, then here's what you should do. In that order. Forgiveness first, then repentance. Grace first, then obedience. Rest first then fruits. As we rest in him, we will bear fruit for him. Rules say hope in you. Jesus says hope in me. Rules are about trying. Jesus is about trusting. Rules keep people out. But Jesus, thanks be to God, he brings people in. Let's pray together this morning.